Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Matthew chapter 14. Jason, would you mind taking this for me? I thought it would be good for us just to kind of, um, I suppose, consolidate some of the thinking that we've been journeying through over the last few months. And um, one of the things I think that perhaps I need to disclose to you um, is more to do with revelation than it is to with application. But I feel that God has called me to pursue his kingdom. And um, consequently, what that means is that my picture of the world and my orientation to his kingdom is beyond the boundaries of a local church. I feel that my calling is something more than that, something as well as that. And so um, I feel and about 10, 15 years ago, the Holy Spirit just began to speak to me about the kingdom of heaven, and the desire for me to pursue that has grown consistently in my heart over that time. And so over these next couple of weeks before we get ready for Easter, I thought it would be really good to talk to you about that, just to, to share a little bit of what I feel I've learned over that. We're going to read in a moment from verse 13. Um, let's read that together. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. One of the dynamics of the kingdom that I suppose we perhaps need to just wait a moment in the Lord here to, to understand is that when Jesus is moved with compassion, the actual word there for compassion is, is to, to do with the, 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 the bowels. It's to do with the depths of who he is. He's not moved with sympathy. He's not moved with a sense of duty. He's not moved with a sense of religiosity. He's moved with compassion. And um, I've noticed over time um, that when God begins to move, compassion, uh, a movement within us, begins a movement through us into the world in which God has placed us. There's a wonderful story last weekend. A lady texted me in the afternoon. I think her name was Kathleen. She said that she'd been in the meeting in the morning and felt very challenged about um, sharing her faith with her, her in her workplace. And she, um, I think, is a home help or a carer of some description. And she went in the afternoon and to visit this particular client. And lo and behold, there were two people there with the client. And she led both of them to Jesus Christ. Oh, it's not Kathleen. No, what is it? Sorry. Karen, sorry, sorry. Kathleen's the lady you look after that. I, that thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Karen, come up and tell us about it. You should have kept your mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll give you a bit of background first. I've been a carer for 15 years, and I've been working with this lady who's got a bit closer first. Huntington's disease. <laughs> Huntington's disease is a brain disease where your brain starts to break down. So everything else in your body starts to break down over time and your life expectancy is about 20 years. So her father had it and he died. She's got it and her son has now got it because it's a hereditary condition. Um, the lady that I brought to, well, 
God used me to bring to the Lord is her mother who lives next door to her. And her mother's carer who was looking after her is also poorly. He's very, very ill and he's got um, lots of blood clots in his body and he's died twice and I brought him back. So after, not last week's service, the service before, I texted her in the week and I asked her how she was because I've been working with her daughter for two and a half years. And she said, not very well. And I just said to her, you know, you're not meant to carry these burdens by yourself. Um, and she says, I know. And I said, I'll, I'll pray for you. And she says, thank you. Then last Sunday, I went to work after here. And I texted her again from her daughter's house. And I said, um, how are you? And she said, not very good. I said, oh, would you like me to come around and pray for you? And she said, can you pray from where you are? And I said, oh, okay then. And uh, I just asked the Holy Spirit to show up in her house. And that's what he did. And um, she says, I'm very frightened. Can I speak to you? So I went outside into the garden. There's just a little gate that divides the two gardens. And she said that when Don came home from hospital, she opened his wash bag and she found a figure of the Grim Reaper inside. She doesn't know where it's come from. So one of the other ladies who's a night carer, she's a Christian, she removed it. And she says, I'm so frightened. So then I explained to her again that Jesus did not intend you to carry all these burdens by yourself. She's watched her husband die of the disease, her daughter's dying of the disease, and her grandson has now got the disease. She's got many, many ailments herself. She had a, a brain hemorrhage or something. She's got lots of conditions wrong with her. And... Um, and I explained about, you know, that Jesus doesn't want you to carry these burdens by yourself. And, you know, um, would you like him to help you? And she went, yes, I would. And so she gave her life to Christ. And then she ran in, she got done, she put a chair there, I put a mask on, and he gave his life to Christ. Thank well. you, Lord. Thank you, Karen. Thank you very much. And so I, I kind of rest my case there. The kingdom, the kingdom is everywhere. And, um, and for us to fully embrace all that God has for us, we need to be kingdom orientated. Otherwise, we'll become very insular and very small in the way we see the world. And it'll become all about our own personal piety or even our church attendance. But God has an expansive nature and he desires to consistently invite us into that nature. And so, Karen, not Kathleen, Karen, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that. Let, let's read on. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, verse 15, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave to them the disciples, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men besides women and children. And so we have what I would term as a kingdom moment here. Jesus is trying to demonstrate 
the kingdom to his disciples. And um, a couple of things maybe to note about that. The first thing I've always discovered with God is that where there's a problem, there is also a promise. I think we've been so orientated to focus on the problem and not really trained or taught to discover the promise. And so one of the things regarding the kingdom that's important is we have to be promise-seeking individuals, not problem-solving individuals, that's a slightly different thing, but promise-seeking individuals. So you find yourself, and I find myself, in all kinds of contexts where there are problems. Has anybody noticed that people have problems? Has anybody had problems themselves? Okay, so the world is full of problems. And in the natural realm, problems seem to be the final and ultimate decider on all manner of things in people's lives. But as people who carry the Holy Spirit in our lives, as people who are welcomed into the family of God, as people who are born again and filled with the Spirit, we're not here to identify problems. We're here to bring resolutions. We are promise-filled people who are taught by the Spirit to go looking for the promises even in the midst of the problems. And um, if I could camp on that for a week, I would, but I don't have the time to do so. But that is a whole switching away from the way we've been trained to live our lives. And it's a kingdom orientation that can only come whenever you start to be the kind of people that are seeking the promise even in the midst of the problem. And uh, I would encourage you to orientate your heart towards that. So in Glasgow, we had so many experiences of this where people would come up and when they were healed to some level or measure, and we'd ask them, what has happened to you? And they'd identify the problem. They'd say, you know, I still have pain in my leg. And I often would say, well, on a scale of one to 10, between, you know, how you felt when you came in and how you feel now, how much better is it? Is it? And they'd say, oh, it's an eight but I still have pain in my leg, okay? And I used to look at that and, and watch that and think, what is that, God? Why do people identify the problem and not celebrate the promise? What is it about that? And our culture has conditioned us consistently to be problem-orientated in the way we live our lives. Our news is all about problems. Our culture predominantly is orientated towards discovering, identifying, and agreeing that there is a problem. But the people of God, the kingdom of God, those who are filled with the Spirit, are called to live from a different place. You see, when all you have is your own human energy and effort to resolve matters, then you will obviously be problem-orientated. But when you have a knowledge that the resources of heaven are unstoppable and never ceasing, then you start to think a little bit differently about problems because you realize that there are opportunities for promises to become manifest. And it's really important for the church to not be problem-orientated. That's why I get a little bit antsy with people who go around with placards complaining about everything because all they're really doing is identifying there's a problem. I also get a little bit frustrated with prophetic voices that identify the sin in people's lives because all they're doing is identifying with the problem. Jesus doesn't see the world as you see it. He doesn't see the world as I see it. He's not like wringing his fingers in heaven, worried about what's happening in Russia. 
because our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And he has given the church the resources to not just be problem-oriented, but promise keepers. People who are living in the promise of God and people who are moving in the spirit of God so that the promises become yes and he can say from heaven, amen. Amen. So for the first part of this kingdom come orientation, I want to ask you that question. Just view your world, view your life if you like. Are you a problem-orientated individual, or are you the kind of person that seeks the promise in the midst of the problems? Now, what we have to remember is that Jesus is not some kind of, you know, he's not living in denial about the world. I, I would say this of God, he is, he is a realist with a happy disposition. So God knows that there are difficulties, God knows that are, there are problems, God knows that there are complex issues that human beings face, and he's not you know, living in some kind of parallel universe where he's not touched by that. In fact, he's here, right here with us, Emmanuel, God amongst his people, not just to help us see the problem, but to be the promise, and he is the promise in every circumstance that we face. Now, that whole concept, I know for some of us, is a little bit extreme, um, but I just want to suggest to you that this is where we as the community of lovers that follow Jesus are being led by the Spirit towards because if we are not orientated to the promise and we become preoccupied with the problem, we're no different than any other organization on the planet. And as people who have been given a hope that is steadfast and sure, we are meant to come into those contexts and into this world with that sense of hope and that sense of expectation and that sense of faith that God can do whatever God wants to do in every context. And when I start to think like that, I move towards seeing the kingdom. I move towards the, the fullness of what God has for me. So we have here, as you can tell in the feeding of the 5,000, a problem. By anybody's standards, it's a, a large, significant problem. The Bible tells us here that there's you know, 5,000 men are counting women and children, and that means that we're probably talking around somewhere like 13, maybe 14,000 people collected on the side of a hill, and they're all listening to the teaching of Jesus, and there's a problem. Now, one of the things I want to say to you about the kingdom and about the, the people of God in, in the midst of the world is that we are not really conditioned by heaven as much as we are conditioned by earth. So our worldview, our, our concepts of what is or what isn't true are shaped by our human experience. They're shaped by our culture. And, and unlike um, many people in the scriptures who see some things differently. The disciples are a little bit like you and me. They have that kind of orientation. They can see the problem, but they don't realize the promise is standing right in the middle of it. So 13,000 people gathered on a hillside, and the disciples identify the problem. Does that not sound a little bit like your life or my life? <laughs> they don't realize that the resources of heaven and earth are at their disposal, and they come and they identify to Jesus. One thing to say on the, on the back of that is if I'm only coming to Jesus with my problems, I should not be surprised that the promises are not visible. I think the church 
many people pray and they pray their problems. Is that not you? Maybe for your best friend who couldn't make it this morning then. <laughs> the church pray their problems. Um, I've been in enough intercessory meetings to see that and to experience that, that people are praying their problems. Now, it's not that God wants you to ignore your problems, but really our orientation should be to find the promise in the midst of the problem. So, how many prayer meetings have you been to where it's all about how terrible it is, how bad it is, how bleak it is, how difficult it is? Have you found that you left those prayer meetings full of hope? No? Well, not unaware of the problem. What he desires for his church to, to discover is the promise. And I've been in all kinds of prayer meetings. Prayer is one of my favorite things in, the, in my relationship with God. I think of all the callings on my life, I think intercession is probably the strongest. But, but the reality is that so many people pray like a weeping widow or a grieving widow. So we pray out of our soul, we pray out of our brokenness, we pray out of our need, but actually, we're meant to pray like an expectant bride on the eve of her wedding day. And that is praying out of joy and praying out of a sense of anticipation and praying out of a sense of, of fullness and blessing and truth and reward. And um, if you want to know what people really feel about God or what they believe about the kingdom, listen to their prayers. Because their prayers will disclose the secrets of their heart without them realizing it. And so, I hope I have not overstated the case, but it's so important for the church of Jesus Christ to not be problem-centric, but to be promise-keeping, fulfilling, pursuing individuals. Is that okay? But the disciples turn up, and their world has been one where there's been lack, and so they come to the master, they come to Jesus, and they identify the problem. The interesting thing for me is like, they think he didn't notice. Like he's not aware of what's happening around him, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And notice the response of Jesus. He doesn't kind of give them a lecture on faith. He, doesn't, he says, you feed them, you give them something. I, I wanna pause here for a moment because I think these things escape us. What Jesus is testing in the disciples is their understanding of the kingdom. He's saying indirectly, you have unlimited resources at your disposal. Do something about the so-called problem. And um, <laughs> for me, when I read this, I'm, this is a very familiar part of the scriptures to me. God taught me lots of things through this. I, I start to realize that the church really, when we start to identify the problem, we become very aware of our humanity and not so much aware of God's divinity. Would you say that's true? So the disciples are discovering something here about themselves and Jesus is allowing this to happen for them to see some truths. And so he says, you give them something. And um, humanity is such a blessing to me, but sometimes it drives me mad. Um, they come up with a solution. <laughs> And um, it's wholly inadequate and completely and utterly ridiculous. And um, all of these things are playing themselves out because Jesus is not so much 
focused on the needs of the people, but perhaps wanting to draw the disciples' attention to the fullness of the kingdom. And so we've got 13,000 women and children, men. We've got a huge problem. And now Jesus says to his disciples, do something about that. Now, if I was to sit in, in, in a, a position of thinking about the world in which I'm living in, I realize something about the power of God. God always allows there to be a bigger problem than perhaps we conceive or believe the promise can fulfill. So when you look at what's happening in our world, we have a number of options. We either become paralyzed because there's so much anarchy and pain and suffering and difficulty, or we become energized. And we become energized because we're living with expectancy, hope, and joy. Obviously, some of you didn't get that memo, but that's really what the kingdom is like. We're living with expectancy, hope, and joy. Amen? Yes. Amen. And so, the problem always appears greater than the promise. That's a kingdom principle. 13,000 people looking for food, Jesus tells the disciples to do something because he wants them to activate what they already understand about the kingdom of God. And they come up with a solution which looks like it's so inadequate and so small and so pitiful that anybody who was in leadership would say, come on, please. You know, a few loaves and fish, how is that going to make a blind bit of difference to anybody here? So, kingdom thinking draws us into this particular story with a completely different perspective than perhaps what is natural um, when we start to see the provision of God a little bit differently. So, the need is always greater than the supply. In the kingdom of heaven, the need is always greater than the supply. The problem gives birth to the promise. Say that out loud for me. If you understood God's nature, you would realize the greater the problem, the more profound the promise. Okay? If you understood God's nature. So when we are facing problems, or indeed confronted by need, what the devil wants us to do, and what we've been trained to do, is identify the problem and be paralyzed by the need. That's what we've been trained to do. I can't do anything about this. I have no resources. I have no power. I have no authority. But actually, the opposite is true. Wherever you find yourself in the midst of a problem, you are the promise in that environment that can bring kingdom breakthrough. You are the promise. You are there, not accidentally, but intentionally by God. When you see a sick person come towards you and you feel that you don't know what to say or how to act with that, you are the resource of heaven, even if it looks small and inadequate and, and completely inappropriate, you are the resource of heaven to that person at that time in that context. Amen? Amen. So. 
God likes there to be a gap between the need and the supply. God loves there to be a gap. If there isn't a gap, then you don't need his kingdom. If there isn't a gap, then you don't see his power. If there isn't a gap, then you don't recognize the resources that are given to you, however small or inadequate they look, and you won't utilize them for his purposes. There is always a gap in the kingdom of heaven. Now remember I said at the beginning of this that my orientation is beyond some of these things which we do in church, and that is to understand the kingdom of heaven and to be able to live and flourish in those environments as best as I know how. And God has been teaching me these principles for a number of years. Do you mind if I take off my coat? I might stay now. Is that okay? <laughs> so, the gap is good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. In fact, it makes me feel wholly inadequate. But the gap is good. It's good for me. It's good for God. It's good for the kingdom. The gap is good. If I stop allowing God to create gaps, okay, then I will stop growing spiritually. If I try and nail down everything and make sure that I have all the resources at my disposal to be able to fulfill everything, then I will cease to grow spiritually. The gap is good. It's good for me. It's good for king, the king of kings. It's good for the kingdom. It's good for people to see. Now, in this particular context, the gap was huge, absolutely phenomenally huge. What was required was so much more beyond what was the supply. So what did Jesus do? When they brought the fish and the loaves to him, he teaches us how to live in the kingdom. It's like a submersive aspect of this particular text. And the first thing he doesn't do is complain. In every problem, there's a promise. The gap is, who's it good for? Okay. I'll keep going, I'll keep driving at home, I'm sorry. So you're there, 13,000 people. The gap is phenomenal. The disciples have been instructed by Jesus to do something. They miss the point and try and circumvent it. But they come up with some solution, which is, by anybody's standards, wholly inadequate. They have a few loaves and some fish, and they bring it to Jesus. So the gap is good. The gap is good for me, it's good for the kingdom, it's good for people. Um, the supply is always there, but it may not look as I want it to look. It may not come wrapped up in the package I hope it will. Because if you are a promise-seeking individual, the problem will bow its knee. If you are a problem-oriented person, the promise will look wholly inadequate. Okay, so Jesus, he doesn't take the, the loaves and the fish and say, 
Are you kidding me, Father? Are you having a laugh? Are you having a jaff? What on earth can I do with this? He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, um, I prefer brown bread. <laughs> Is it possible? I mean, I hate cod, so could you possibly maybe switch up the fish for me? He doesn't do any of that because he knows his father and he knows his father's ways. Amen? So while the disciples are running crazy trying to find a solution to the problem, Jesus stands in the middle of the problem and understands the provision of his father. So in my life, in your life, when I have a huge problem, when the gap is so extensive, when I find myself completely and utterly aware of my human deficiencies or spiritual deficiencies, God has already placed in that environment his provision. I may not see it instantly. I probably don't recognize it as enough. It'll feel wholly inadequate. But in the middle of my problem is his provision. Amen? Amen. Now, what I'm talking about is not that you recite scriptures at your problem. Okay, this is a whole other level of living with Christ. Okay, I need to understand that in every problem, there is a promise I have to go looking for, but there is also a provision that will appear to me like it's insufficient. So, everybody knows how many seeds there are in an apple. But only God knows how many apples there are in a seed. When you have a problem, Remember, you've got to be a promise seeker and a promise keeper. You will find provision. With that kind of orientation, you will find provision. And you'll hold your hand out and it'll look wholly inadequate because everything that God does, he does in seed form. So here's why we miss some of these things. We want burning bushes, we want lightning. See, Jesus could have brought manna down from heaven in this moment, but the disciples wouldn't have learned anything. They would have just been, I suppose, asleep and not engaged in the kingdom, okay? He didn't do any of that, he could have done that, he's done it before, he might do it again next week, who knows? But the reality was, this is a growth spurt for the disciples. So, let me just tidy it up because I think I'm a little bit all over the place. The gap is good. It's good for me, it's good for us, it's good for God because now we start to understand that we are living in this supernatural relationship with the Father who has a cattle on a thousand hills, who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. The gap is always good. It don't feel good. It doesn't feel good at all. Stop waiting for your feelings to direct your life. It's your faith that should direct your life. Okay? We have been conditioned to be problem-orientated in our thinking, and we are being trained by the Spirit to be the kind of people to look for the promise in the middle of the problem, because if we don't see the, the promise, we won't find the provision. And God allows certain things to happen in our lives to create these moments because they transform everything about who we are. They change us into the kind of people that Jesus can trust with his kingdom. Amen? When we find the provision, our duty is not to complain. Yeah. 
A number of years ago, I was in a church and uh, people were worried about the money. That often happens in church. It takes a lot of uh, denarii to run the show. <laughs> and um, I remember questioning myself, why are you not worried about that? Why does that not bother you? Shouldn't you be up at night worried about these things? And I have a, a professional warrior who I live with. <laughs> she has a master's degree in worry. And um, if I don't worry, I know she'll do it for me. In fact, she'll do it for all of you if you ask her to. She's quite benevolent in that way. I mean, over the years, she's found ways of not worrying. And, um, but when we first got married, it was like that. And um, I remember going home and saying to Jane, you know, I feel like I'm, I must, I, I, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm not worried about the finances of the church. And, and she said to me, well, maybe that's faith. I'd never seen it that way. I thought I just didn't care. <laughs> maybe I just didn't care about things like that. And she said, oh, maybe that's, that's faith. And so I went to the Lord and I prayed about that. And I, I realized that the reason why I never worry about money and I don't worry about money is because I've seen over and over and over and over and over again the supply of God. God has supernaturally done things in my life that don't make any sense whatsoever by human logic. In the midst of some of the greatest problems we've ever faced as a family and indeed as, as leaders in, in churches, God has supernaturally supplied. And so I suppose my soul had been conditioned by what the Spirit had been teaching me over those years. And I don't, and still don't, worry or have anxiety about any form of financial need because my God shall supply all my needs according to His riches in glory. It's, it's His responsibility to make the money happen. It's my responsibility to provide an environment for it to happen. Amen? So the gap is good. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's good for the kingdom. It's good for God. The gap is always present when there's a supernatural moment about to happen because the kingdom is about that space. It's about that, that free space for the Holy Spirit to move. The problem is always, in many ways, far more obvious than the provision and the promise. And it takes a lot of intentionality to become the kind of people that God can trust with his kingdom and indeed use to extend his kingdom. And the disciples are in a moment where they are learning deep, powerful kingdom realities that will ensure that they live differently from this moment on. So what does Jesus do? How, how do we live in the midst of the gap? Well, the first thing he does is he thanks his father for the provision. Counterintuitive to us, but not to Jesus. He takes what the father has provided because he trusts that the father knew that this moment would come. He trusts that the father would provide and he is a promise-seeking son so he's looking for the promise in the midst of the problem the gap is not an unfamiliarity to him and so he takes the provision and he doesn't examine it he doesn't critique it he doesn't complain about it he takes it and he thanks his heavenly father if i can tell you how important thankfulness is 
to bringing increase in the kingdom of God. I could keep you here for weeks. Now, here's an issue we have. When we're living in a world that's preoccupied with problems, our culture is orientated to identifying problems, you will never find it easy to celebrate the provision because it will look like it's another problem. Okay, and so consequently, we need to see it all very differently. So you have an issue in your life. God created the gap. Sorry, he did. He has given you a set of eyes internally to see things differently. He's given you his word. You know his nature and his character. He's not a God, God who lacks anything. And when you get the provision, you do not, should not, cannot, please don't ever complain because in the midst of that seemingly small provision is the most incredible, incredible resource that's known to mankind. So... God always answers your prayer, provides your provision in the promise in seed form. You're waiting for a burning bush, parting of the Red Sea, because we are drama queens, aren't we? But God always supplies in seed form. Always supplies. So, let me take you to somewhere in your head. The world is in need of salvation. Okay? The Roman Empire is ruling pretty much two-thirds of the world. And the answer to its dominance is not for God to come in glory in the skies and rewrite the wrongs of historical injustice and persecution. Here's how God changed the world, he put a seed inside the womb of a 15-year-old girl in the back of nowhere. Salvation came unnoticed. It came without drama. The provision for salvation was unseen by the majority of people in Mary's life. But she knew that she had encountered the angel of the Lord, and she carried the seed of the Messiah until he became fully immersed into the world. You're waiting for some drama to happen, some majestic outpouring of something, and actually, the way the kingdom works is vastly different. God always provides, but he always provides in seed form. A number of years ago, we were, I was part of the youth team in this church, and we were looking at ways of trying to reach people with the good news of Jesus. We wanted it to be something that was contemporary, something that was um, engaging, and um, I remember standing in my shower at my mom's house. I was living back home, and I felt God say to me, there is life after dusk. As I dropped the soap and pick it up, I thought, what does that mean? And um, I used to be called Danny Dusky. I know, don't, don't. <laughs> remember, there's a promise in the problem, remember? Okay. <laughs> and um, that little thought about what does that mean? God began to open up this whole program 
in the life of this church that led many people to faith, but it started with a seed. And I could have easily dismissed the seed and consider it not worthy of my attention. But because of the way God spoke to me in the shower, I realized it was something the Lord wanted to do. And we ended up running this thing called uh, After Dusk, actually. Um, and many people came to faith, and it went to BCC in the town, and it went to Oxford, and it went to Newcastle. It began to travel a little bit. And it was this contemporary kind of magazine program with a house band, and Paul was part of that back then. And you know, we had all kinds of people come to those environments. You, you had to queue up outside to get in. They were so popular at the time. And that seed had the potential to lead many to faith, but I had the responsibility of stewarding it. I could have just dismissed it, ignored it, consider it insufficient for the problem that I faced, or I could have embraced it and cultivated it and celebrated it to the point where God used it greatly. You see, I often wonder across the course of my life how many seeds I've missed. How many times the Lord has tried to show me his provision and the fulfillment of his promise, but I expected something other. I expected something dramatic. I expected something, you know, incredible. And actually, it is incredible. But often, we don't really embrace what God says to us because we are so preoccupied with drama. So preoccupied with drama. So the answer to salvation wasn't Jesus coming in triumph and glory in the skies. The answer to injustice wasn't God opening the heavens and pouring out his wrath upon humanity. The answer to the problem of sin and brokenness and pain was the seed. It was the Messiah placed in the womb of a young girl whose name we would never have known had it not been written down in scripture. And from her womb came the majestic salvation work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Never, ever despise the seed. Never, ever overlook the seed. Never, ever not appreciate the seed because the seed is life. And its fulfillment has yet to be fully realized. So Jesus didn't take the bread and the fish and complain. He did something, and that's something I want you to try and do, please, in the midst of your problems. When God brings what looks like a seemingly small provision, I want you to lift your voice and thank God. If heaven had a language, it would be thankfulness. I will enter your gates with now, do you know what? You've been conditioned so much by the world to complain. Just keeping it real for you. You're going to have to really work hard at being grateful. You have to really be diligent about it. Amen? You've been conditioned by society to see what's lacking. You're going to have to really pay attention to what's been provided. Amen? Come on, wake up. If you want to see God fill the gap with his glory, you have to do what Jesus did that opens up the potential of the seed so that everybody can be blessed by it. Amen? So the beginning of the outpouring of this miracle is not 
just the provision of the loaves and the fish. It isn't just the gap that makes everyone feel uncomfortable. It isn't just that Jesus is trying to demonstrate something to the disciples, but when he took the bread and he gives thanks to his Father in heaven, the kingdom comes. You get a seed, you give thanks to God, it grows. You get a small provision, you give thanks to God, it grows. Why do you think we tithe? You get your seed, you give thanks to God. That's why I get a little bit troubled by the downcast way in which we celebrate the offering. If we understood the principles of the kingdom, you'd be dancing to the front because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Okay, that's the truth. That might not be your truth, but that is the truth. Okay, and the reason we don't like giving is because we've lived in a world so full of lack. But in the kingdom of heaven, there is no lack. There is no lack in the kingdom of heaven. So learning who God is and learning how the kingdom works is really important for us. We don't want to be problem-orientated. We want to be promise-orientated. The gap is good. It's good for me, good for God, good for the kingdom, good for others. The provision is right there. If I go looking for the promise, I'll find it. It will look insufficient, but if I want it to become all that God wants it to, I take what God has given me, however small, however inadequate it looks, and I give thanks to the Lord for he is good. I give thanks to the Lord because he's always good. If you want revival, and if you want this city changed, and if you want the world transformed, learn, learn to be thankful. Learn. Any old jobs body can identify problems. The kingdom of God and the people of God are called to live in promise. And here's how you change the outcome. Gratefulness, thankfulness. The second thing that Jesus did is he gave it away. Also counterintuitive to us. Um, I've been in so many revival meetings and they become more like reservoirs than rivers. And the problem with revival, um, when God begins to move, is we all want to hang on to what he's doing. And when you start to hang on to what he's doing, you stop what he's doing. Because you cannot hang on to what God is doing. You can't. So Jesus models for us. The gap is good. That's where God moves. The provision is there. His Father is true to him as the, the Lord who supplies all his needs according to his riches and glory. And Jesus takes the provision without complaining and he gives thanks to his Father in heaven and he breaks it. He breaks it. When, when I think of how God moves by his Spirit, there's always a breaking necessary in the kingdom. Um, okay, let, let me take you here. You want revival? It won't come between 9 and 9 and 10.30. You want the world to be changed through a move of God? It might not be sufficient to give him an hour on a Sunday. Just saying. 
You see, we, we want God to move, but we don't want to be broken. One of the keys to the spirit moving is your yielding to what God wants to do. God moves in you and moves through you, but you have to keep on being subordinate to that. Keep on giving yourself sacrificially to that. And without it, we're just singing songs about revival. Is this too hard for you to hear? Because it's true. We have this notion that revival is about us. It isn't. When God moves in power, he has a greater desire, which is beyond the church, to bring the world into a reformation where God reforms culture and society. We have made revival about us. We've made it about how we feel or our experiences with God. So if you want revival, please don't be obstinate. If you're praying for those things and you believe that those things are possible, be flexible. Be humble. Say, God, you do what you, I mean, Mary models it brilliantly, be it unto me according to your will, O God. You know, we, it's not according to our will and our time frame and how we want it to look. You know, I've been in so many of these meetings, and I, I remember once we had this move of God in healings, and the people who were in a move of God before with the Toronto blessing, they actually hated the move of God through healings. And I remember thinking, what on earth is this about? In fact, one of the elders came up to me at the end of the meeting. We, I sung a song, I think, you have taken the precious from the worthless, given us beauty. It's a, it's a Kevin Prosh song. And they come up and they challenged because one of the lines was, our hearts will become a threshing floor. And the move of God will come. Beautiful lyric. And um, they said to me, no, God doesn't want to beat our hearts. I thought, Because we've been so loved up on the Father heart of God, the fact that God might want to discipline us or you know, challenge us in any way, they couldn't comprehend. And I knew, as the minute I heard that, that they probably weren't going to embrace what the Holy Spirit was doing. Because they had a preconceived idea of what it should look like. Now, I know you wouldn't do that, but for the benefit of your friend who couldn't make it this morning, So he took it without complaining. The provision was enough for Jesus because he understood the nature and the capacity of his father. He gave thanks. He opened up his heart before the Lord in praise and he broke it. He allowed God to take, I mean, you can imagine a few loaves and fish, when you break them, they look even more pitiful, don't they? He broke it and he gave it to his disciples and Lots of commentators say, where did the miracle happen? How did the miracle happen? You know, but the interesting thing for me about this particular narrative is that not only did Jesus model for us how to sustain and um, operate in the middle of a gap like that, he actually demonstrates to the disciples that they can be partakers of that. So he gave the bread and the fish to his disciples. And so you can imagine it, can't you? you Jesus hands it immediately to the people who are closest to him. And they see the provision of God, which at first looks very natural. I wonder how far back in the crowd did somebody twig it was supernatural. The second row. Now these are hungry people. <laughs> you know what Christians are like. 
It's like a swarm of locusts at a buffet in a church, isn't it? Isn't it, Caroline? And generally, people care not for who does or doesn't get a chicken drummer. As long as they've got one, they're completely satisfied. Because after all, they've paid their tithe and they deserve it, don't they? They have every right to all of the drumsticks because they've been paying. It's not a restaurant where you buy food. You know that, don't you? I just want to make that clear for you. But that's the, 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 the mindset of people who have lived with lack. They hoard. They keep. So Jesus gives thanks. He gives it to his disciples. It's broken, and they give it to others, and they give it to others, and they give it to others. And, and the thing that I love about this narrative is everybody, everybody who is part of that day has a miracle in their hands. Everybody. And so consequently, at the end of it, we see that not only has the provision been astonishing, not only has the gap been completely filled by God and his provision, not only did the seed have far more to it than first imagined, but there are 12 baskets, 12 baskets of leftovers that the disciples have to go around and collect. And at that time, uh, in this particular context, there were 12 known countries in the world that had power. So we're talking about this governance of God over all of his creation. Any questions? How do you feel about all of that? You just want to get home, don't you? Any questions? Again, sorry? Time. I think you can't, I can't answer that question because that's more about fellowship than it is about provision. So if there's a, if there's a gap in your life and you're waiting for the supply, is that what you mean by time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I think go ahead and change it. If, if your mindset isn't working with the kingdom, then change your mindset. Conrad, I think you had your hand up, did you? Again, sorry, I can't hear you. The problem. Yeah. That, that's so, we've been conditioned to do that. Don't beat yourself up about that. But trade up. You know, in my mind, I think God, I want to think like God thinks. I want to, to see things the way God wants me to see them. That's the whole purpose of the scriptures, really. That we would start to think like he thinks. Because as we think like he thinks, we start to live as he desires us to live. And so consequently, I can, I can be so conditioned by the world. And I come from a family who had nothing, okay? So the problem was always the lack. So coming into the kingdom and realizing eventually <laughs> that there's no lack in the kingdom of God. There's no lack. And if there's a problem, there's always a promise attached to it. And the provision is there. I just have to be trained by the Spirit to see the provision and to value the provision. 
that for my family is alien. Alien. When, when we had Emily, um, Emily's got a, th a condition called Turner syndrome. And um, we had waited five or six years to have a child. And, and when she came, um, we discovered probably about eight or nine months into her, her being here that she had this condition. And I was absolutely devastated. And I remember sitting with my brother Larry, who'll be in the second service at a Chinese restaurant somewhere. And he was saying, how can you still love God? How can you still praise God? How, you know, people have babies like shelling peas, don't they, sometimes? They're just like, just have babies, don't they? There's no story behind it. It just happens, you know, in, in a profound way. And so I remember looking him in the eye and saying to him, but Emily is a blessing to us. Emily is a blessing to us. We asked and he gave us a child. Now, I didn't say I want a particular health package or a particular orientation as far as looks were concerned. I was just so grateful to have a child. And, and the key, I think, to understanding the kingdom is that gratefulness. I think God gave me that supernatural gratefulness. I mean, I've complained about her since. <laughs> I must keep it real for you. But you know, in, the, in that season, we were just so overwhelmed by how kind God was to us because you, you don't have a right to have children. I think we need to say that out loud. Not everybody has children. It's a blessing when God gives you a child. It's a, isn't it, church? It's a blessing. And I think when we start to think it's a right, we start to undermine the gift yeah, and take for granted how incredibly precious it is to have this beautiful life that God has given us to, to, to walk alongside and nurture and encourage. So, yeah, I, I decided, I think, many years ago to not look at the problem. The problem absolutely paralyzes me. But I want to find the promise and the provision in the midst of the problem. The problems exist. They're real. They happen. Everyone has them. Anybody else? Absolutely. And, and God never forgets. You know, I, I look across my life and I realize, I mean, my brother coming here may not sound like a big thing for you, but for years I prayed that he would find Jesus. And, and he had no interest whatsoever. In fact, he was vehemently against anything to do with my Christianity. And so in a few moments' time, he'd be sitting on a seat after 20 years, after 20 years, I've st I stopped praying for him. I mean, I thought, oh, stuff it. If he's not going to get saved, forget it. <laughs> Don't tell me you haven't done the same. I forgot, I forgot that, that my prayers are stored up in heaven. And I forgot that God is faithful to his promises. And I forgot that, that God is the omega as much as he is the alpha. And that God is faithful to his people. I forgot all of those things. And you know, the first few weeks when he came, I thought it was a fluke. 
I thought he was just being nice to me, you know, just kind of being supportive. And um, I said to him about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, why do you keep coming? And he said, I don't know, I like it. <laughs> I just like it. He said, it makes me feel good. I'll take anything. If that's how God is moving in his life, then I hope he feels really good today when he comes. Because who doesn't want to feel better? And, and when you associate that kind of feeling with this kind of environment, you're already on a journey with God because in his presence there is fullness of joy and life evermore at his right-hand side. And, and you know, you today, some of us in this room, we are the fulfillment of the promise of God and someone waited a heck of a long time for that to come to pass. And, and I'm quite surprised that some of you are saved. I'm shocked if I'm honest. I mean, I wouldn't have chosen you. But God, <laughs> God, God took the prayer of someone somewhere or the intentionality of someone somewhere and he never, ever, ever would allow that to disappear. It stood in heaven somewhere and at the right time, in the right place, in the right moment, God came and touched your heart and your life. And you're here not because, you know, you found Jesus, but you're here because Jesus was waiting and seeking and searching you. It's, it's the most profound thing. But can I ask you to stand for a minute? Time is gone. But I, I just want to kill some things. Is that okay? If you are the kind of person that sees the problem first. Put your hand up, would you please? Okay. I'll just take it the rest of you were lying. Okay, the problem with the problem is it eclipse, eclipses the promise. Adversity is an introduction to glory. So if you are orientated that way and the problem is very visible and tangible, you're in the best possible place to see the outcome change. Okay? So, Father, I just pray that you would teach us your ways. When I see a problem, Lord God, I do not, and I hope my friends do not, want to be paralyzed by the problem. I want to be energized by the promise. I want to be the kind of person, Lord, that looks at something that seemingly is impossible and recognize that my God supersedes, overrides, has a sovereignty and a glory beyond the problem. I also want to take the catalog of experiences I've had with you and say this to my problem when I see it. You will make a way where there appears to be no way. That's your nature, God. But I need to see it before I can be it, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, you'd open my eyes to the supernatural dynamics that take place around problems. And Father, I pray that the enemy would not steal from me the greatest gift, which is to see your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth. Who's got a prophetic word? Who's had a scripture that's spoken to you? Come on, all of you should have your hands in the air. Nobody's ever read the Bible and it spoke to you? 
You might want to turn over a new page then. Come on. Have you, have you read the Bible and it spoke to you? Give me a wave if that's you. Come on. Okay, when the Spirit speaks to you through the Word of God, that isn't just a moment, that's a movement. Okay, and you are called in those moments to partnership with the movement of the Holy Spirit. So you have seed. You have seed. Every one of us has seed. Amen? Hold your seed out in front of you. I know this is childlike, but hey, it, it helps. You have seed. God's spoken, God's spoken, God's spoken, God's spoken. Yes? You have seed. You have, even if you don't have those kind of orientations, the Word of God is full of seed. Full of seed, okay? So you have seed in your hand. You have seed. Now, what you do with that seed is up to you, but I'm going to teach you something in a moment, okay? Open your hand. It looks insufficient. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Yes, it looks insufficient. Right now, it's not in its rightful place. It's not been conditioned to grow. Don't hold on to your promise. Bury it in your heart. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, David said. Don't have your, your Bible promises at the end of your Bible one day somehow. That's Peter Pan theology. It doesn't all pan out in the end. Okay, you've got to plant the seed for it to become alive. Now, whatever God's promised you that you haven't seen fulfilled right now in this moment, thank Him. Condition the seed for increase. Thank Him. Thank Him. Whether it's somebody coming to faith or your own personal journey, or the promise he's made to you of recovery, or the fact that you believe one day you will be used by him gloriously, thank him, thank him, thank him, thank him. Whoever it is, wherever it is, whatever it looks like, thank him. If you want to condition the soil of your heart to receive the blessing of God, thankfulness is the best and indeed the most profound way you can do that. And as you are thanking him right now, I declare over your life, increase, 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 increase in Jesus' precious name. Increase right now in Jesus' precious name. And I don't know who's standing next to you, but give it away. Just give it away. Not indiscriminately. Just give it away. Just as a symbol of kingdom release. When you're giving it away, you're saying, God, take this and do something majestic with it. You're opening up. You're moving away from an orphan mind and you're stepping towards royal priesthood. When you give it away, he gives it back to you, pressed down, shaken up, and overflowing. Give it away. Always give away the things you receive from the kingdom. As you give them away, they come back at you. Their increase, their increase comes back at you. It's a profound reality in the kingdom of heaven. And last thought as you leave. What you think is a seed, what you look at as insufficient, what we in our human ability and capacity see as probably something quite small has the power to change nations. Martin Luther King 
I have a dream. That dream cost him his life, but it also brought life to so many people throughout the course of history. You think it's a seed? It doesn't look like it's much. Thankfulness positions your heart for increase. Giving it away releases you from that orphan-mindedness. But what you have given away, I declare over your life today, will be given back to you, pressed down, shaken up, and overflowing. Jesus prayed these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Wait, 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 wait. When we partner with the kingdom like this, his kingdom comes. It's not a concept, it's a reality. Jesus didn't come just to save you from your sin. He came with his kingdom to bring life to everything. Amen? Amen. So, when you see a problem today or tomorrow, look for, yeah. Remember the provision will always look like it's insufficient. What do we do with it? And we give it away. And God will do something, a movement through your life that has the potential to change the world. Have a great week, church.